Because you, you pick up the story here through chapter nine, midway into this chapter, uh, Jesus has just declared to his disciples that a cross awaits, that the king must die. And then on the other side of that cross is resurrection glory, a three days later empty tomb. Not only that, Jesus has also just declared that Christianity is not easy believism. This, this idea that I prayed a prayer back in the day, I walked an aisle, I signed a card, I meant it, I'm pretty sure I did, so now I'm good to go and just coast to my death and bank on that ticket to heaven. No, rather, Jesus says, going back to last week, uh, that the Christian life is a life of self-denial and sacrifice for the glory of God, calling the disciples to take up their own cross and following him on the other side of which awaits their own crown of glory. Following those sober words on what Jesus has come to accomplish and what it means to be his disciple, picking up the story, Luke chapter nine, verse 28, Luke tells us, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Right, Jesus takes his inner circle of three up, up on a mountain to pray, the ascent up the mountain itself, hearkening back to the story of Moses at Mount Sinai. Something happens, Luke tells us here, as Jesus is praying, a transformation. According to Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts, a transfiguration from the Greek word metamorpho. It's where we get the, the English word metamorphosis, like the transformation of a caterpillar to a butterfly, a change in outward form. The appearance of his face altered so that it shone like the sun, Matthew 17, 2. His clothes dazzling white as no one on earth could bleach them, Mark chapter 9, verse 3 the lamb without blemish or spot. Hebrews chapter one, verse three says it this way. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The imagery of, of radiance harkens back to the concept of the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. The Shekinah glory was a visible glory revealing the splendor and majesty of God. You see that Shekinah glory in the Exodus as well as the dedication of Solomon's temple the author of Hebrews declaring that Jesus himself is the Shekinah glory of God, the visible revelation of God's splendor and majesty, that when you look at Jesus, you're staring at the glory of God. That similar to how we know the, the sun by virtue of its light and heat, we know the glory of God by virtue of Jesus's embodiment and radiance of that glory. It's why the Nicene Creed describes Jesus with these words, he's light from light, true God from God. That in coming down from having met with God on Mount Sinai, Exodus 34, Moses' face shone with the reflection of God's glory. The radiance of Jesus here on the Mount of Transfiguration, very different. No reflection, but rather the radiance of God himself, that Jesus is the greater Moses. R.C. Sproul in his commentary on this passage says, in this moment, God removed the veil and the concealed deity of Christ burst through the cloak of his humanity, displaying itself in nothing less than the pure radiance and refulgence of divine glory. I mean, can, can you imagine? I mean, a front row seat to that? I mean, I think our, our minds initially go to, I, I would have loved to have seen the empty tomb, the resurrection, and then there's this. 
a beholding of nothing less than the pure radiance and refulgence of divine glory to use Sproul's words. But wait, it gets better. Verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and, and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I won't pretend to, to think that I can possibly make sense of the fullness of what's going on here as it pertains to the presence of Moses and Elijah. Suffice it to say, in the words of one commentator, those two men took a brief leave from heaven where they beheld the glory of the Father day and night and came to earth to behold the glory of the Son. That's what's happening here. Both men prophets, both having met with the Lord on a mountain, both expected in many Jewish traditions to be part of the ushering in of the end times. Their very presence here affirming Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one. Together representing the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. Here standing, think about this. Here standing in the presence of the fulfillment of everything to which their lives and ministries had been devoted. John 5 verse 46 says it this way. Jesus says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me, Moses wrote of me. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's about me. If you don't believe his writings, Jesus says, how will you believe my words? Or how about Matthew five seventeen, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, Moses and Elijah. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The promised one, having come to fulfill the law by... Uh, keeping all of its commands, fulfilling all righteousness, the true priest, the, the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, the true tabernacle, the true bread from heaven. E even the language of departure, verse 31, hearkening back to the days of Moses. Jesus is, on the one hand, clearly referring to his departure from this world, right? Having just made clear that he must suffer and die. But the word Jesus uses here, it's an incredibly unusual word used to describe death in the scriptures. It's the Greek word exodus, a word that surely would have been familiar to Moses as he stood there talking with Jesus on that great mountain. It was Moses who led God's people out of Egyptian enslavement in the wake of the first Passover, the night that God struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, those whose front door was not covered by the blood of an unblemished lamb, the lamb acting as their substitute. Now here on the mountain, standing before the one having come to establish a greater exodus in his blood, the true Passover lamb without blemish or spot, whose righteousness is credited to sinners by faith. As Peter says, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, you, Christian, were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He's the great redeemer, the great deliverer, having come to perform the most uh, powerful work of liberation the world has ever known. The true Passover lamb, having come to shed his blood that we might go free. And not from Egypt, but the far greater shackles of sin and death. That's the conversation that, that Moses and Elijah are having with Jesus as they stand in the presence of, of the radiance of his glory. Luke goes on to tell us, verse 32. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. 
<laughs> and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Peter, James, and John fall asleep on Jesus. Seems to be something of a theme in the Gospels. In the midst of a power nap as all of this is going down. And they, they awake to the wonder of the, the pure radiance of divine glory so that reality probably felt more like a dream than any dream they had ever had. I mean, think about it. Going back to the previous chapters of Luke's gospel account, they had seen Jesus calm a storm with a word. They had seen Jesus cast out demons by the legions. They had seen Jesus raise a little girl from the dead. They'd seen Jesus turn a little boy's lunch into a meal for thousands of people. But now, John 17, five, they were seeing something of the glory that Jesus had with the Father before the world began. Right after, mind you, having been told that a life of discipleship is a life of self-denial and cross-bearing. It's the kindness of the Lord and showing these men that Jesus is the fullness of God's splendor and glory, his radiance and beauty. He's the treasure hidden in a field. He's worth everything he was calling them to, that he's calling us to. And Peter gets caught up in the moment, tends to be a guy who asks for forgiveness, not permission most of the time. In the midst of that mountaintop experience, the likes of which would make any summer youth camp pale in comparison. And he doesn't wanna leave. And rightly so, we'd probably be the same way. And he says to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. That word tent also can be translated tabernacle. Another of the many themes in this morning's passage hearkening back to the Old Testament, the tabernacle being the, the place of God's presence and house of worship as Israel wandered through the wilderness. The trouble with, with Peter's plan is it, it fails to realize two things. For one, there's only one on the Mount of Transfiguration who's worthy of worship. There's only one worthy of a tabernacle, and his name is Jesus. As Philip Ryken says in his commentary on this passage, he says, Jesus Christ does not have any peers. When he spoke with Moses and Elijah, as great as those men were, he was not consulting with his colleagues. On the contrary, his greatness is unique, and whatever glory the disciples saw in him was the inherent, intrinsic splendor of his own supreme majesty. Jesus Christ deserves all worship and honor and glory and praise. To give him anything less than everything we have is to rob the son of his glory. That there weren't three gods standing on the mountain that day, only one. In addition, Peter fails to realize that, that this moment was never meant to last, as if the glory could be embraced without the suffering. That God's plan of redemption must march onward toward Jerusalem, which is where the remainder of Luke's gospel account is headed. That's season two. As N.T. Wright says in his commentary, they were unable to understand how it was that the glory which they had glimpsed on the mountain, the glory of God's chosen son, the servant who was carrying in himself the promise of redemption would finally be unveiled on a very different hill, an ugly hill outside Jerusalem. But going back to last week, the king must die 
Again, a prophecy that the disciples struggle to accept all the way up to the last chapter of Luke's gospel account as we see the two disciples on the road to Emmaus devastated and disoriented. Verse 34, Luke tells us, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. That cloud, a representation of the Shekinah glory, presence of God in the Old Testament, so that Peter, James, and John, they're now seeing what the prophets and people of old had seen. This was the cloud that, that passed by Moses in the cleft of the rock, Exodus 33 and 34, so that Moses saw the back of God's glory in passing. This was the cloud that covered and filled the tabernacle with the glory of God so that Moses couldn't enter it, Exodus chapter 40. This was the cloud that entered the temple during its dedication in Solomon's day, 2 Chronicles 7, so that the priest couldn't enter the house of the Lord. Here, the, the glory cloud of God's presence overshadows that, that mountain as if the pure radiance of divine glory in the transfigured person of Jesus Christ weren't enough. And the Father speaks, giving verbal confirmation to everything that Peter, James, and John are seeing with their eyes. This is my son, my chosen one. We've seen in Luke's gospel account, the crowds misconstrued Jesus's identity, particularly over the course of the last couple chapters. Some mistaking him for John the Baptist, others for Elijah, maybe one of the prophets of old having risen. Seen Herod do the same and failing to understand just who Jesus truly is. Going back to last week, even Peter's right confession was without full understanding as he pushed back on this idea of a suffering Messiah. Here God the Father gives full expression to who Jesus truly is. Very, very similar to the Father's words of affirmation, going back to chapter three at the anointing and coronation ceremony of Jesus' baptism the eternal, divine, beloved Son of God on whom the perfect approval of the Father and anointing power of the Spirit rest. But notice the uniqueness of the Father's words here in chapter nine that are different in, in what we see compared to Jesus' baptism. As he makes clear that not only is Jesus the beloved Son of God, but the chosen Son of God appointed before the foundation of the world to accomplish the Father's plan of redemption. Not God's plan B, God's plan A, before sin ever even entered the world. The only hope for, for lost sinners of rescue. He's right, my chosen son, and saying that a cross awaits. Every word he speaks is true. Listen to him, the Father says. It's an experience that, that Peter, James, and John, they never forgot it. Two of the three of them carried along by the Spirit to later write about it in the Scriptures. John chapter one, verse 14. John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Or more explicitly, Peter, who was on that mountain, second Peter chapter one. For we did not father, father, uh, follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it. 
For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, Peter said, heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain, the mountain of, of transfiguration. You might ask, well, it's great for those guys. I mean, what about us? We weren't on that mountain. Where's the hope? Which Peter goes on to say, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, another way we could say that, the experience of Peter, James, and John on top of that glorious mountain, fleeting. It had to come to an end. God's second coming in Christ, it'll usher the saints into a never-ending wonder of the fullness of his glory. That's our hope. That Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, nothing less than the pure radiance and refulgence of divine glory. And as we await his return, as we long for that day, the Father demands that we bow to him and heed his words. And that coming back to last week, that's the only path to true and lasting happiness. That's where this story's going. That for those who might say, I wish I could have been there, I would say, me too. <laughs> I wish I could have seen the radiance of that kind of glory. I would say to that, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's the same glory that you and I will someday behold. That's why Revelation 21 verses 22 and 23 says, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. That what John's saying there in the book of Revelation, the radiance of the glory of Jesus Christ will make sun, moon and stars non-essential in the celestial city that awaits the saints of God. You ever, you ever stood in awe of the moon on a bright night? Laid under the stars at night and found yourself awestruck by that canopy of lights? You ever gotten into a staring contest with the sun? Lost very quickly? Found yourself bowing out because the brightness was too much to bear? What John's saying here in Revelation, all that cosmic stage lighting will look like a keychain flashlight in comparison to the glory of Christ. If the Christian life is about anything other than the gain of Jesus, well, there's not enough there to keep us holding on. But if it's about the glory of Christ, there's a lot here to cling to this morning. R.C. Sproul, again, to quote him, he says, heaven itself will be a perpetual mount of transfiguration where there will be no more veil, no more concealment, but the white, brilliant light of the glory of God and of his Lamb will be there for our vision every moment. The never-ending, awe-inspiring Mount of Transfiguration known as the New Jerusalem. So that my prayer is simple this morning as we close out. It's that the future hope of that eternal glory would compel you and I to follow Jesus today, to listen to him as the Father says. In a moment, have an opportunity to continue to behold the glory of God 
to sing of it, to declare it. Through our collective song, for one, just invite you to sing and sing loudly to declare the wonder of, of just who uh, Jesus truly is. As Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. When you look at Jesus, you are looking at God's glory. We get to sing that. And then we also get to partake of the Lord's Supper together. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. If you missed it on your way in, there are communion cups on the back table uh, near the, the exit uh, in the back of the auditorium. You're welcome to go grab one of those uh, during uh, these last couple songs. Uh, we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. You're welcome to partake of that whenever you're prepared to do so over the course of these last two songs. We don't do that in a collective sort of way in terms of the timing of that because we wanna give space to you all to, to meet with the Lord, to sit with the elements, to take that in, the wonder of all of the imagery that we see here of Jesus who would go on in Luke's gospel account to establish that greater exodus by his blood, his broken body, that we would see that imagery as we take the bread and dip it in the cup this morning and say, wonder of wonders, Jesus, that you're the fulfillment of everything we see in the Old Testament. You're the hero of this entire story of redemption.